This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary human who inspires me with the way that they interact and change the world. Today, I have someone on the line with us who I am so excited to talk to. Her name is Carrie Dashow, and I discovered her through her condiment, which is Atina Foods and her herbal jams, but we got talking about art and identity. And I was like, oh my goodness, I need to have you on the show. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much, Dana. So you've done a ton of work around the notion of place and belonging. And I feel like those two things come together in the food that you're making. So I thought we might start the podcast just setting people in the Catskills, in your production, in the food, and then we'll radiate out from there. So tell me about Atina the Corn Goddess and the food that you're making. So we live in Catskill, New York, which is actually funny enough, not in the Catskills, but we are at the base of the Catskill Mountains. And we moved here maybe five, six something years ago. So we call ourselves Atina Foods. In the front of where we live, there is a kind of almost abandoned like 10 acres of land. And in the center of it, there is a Madonna in a um, half bathtub, which is a typical thing you see around here. She she kind of became a effigy to us when we moved here because she really stands between us and the mountains and overlooks us and, and what we're doing here. We immediately felt an affinity towards her, even though I was born a Jew. My husband was born a Hindu. We were both not necessarily practicing, but we're very spiritual people. And she just came to us as a mother goddess, really. And we would bring things to her and kind of um, feel her in our presence. And the woman who used to own the land would tell us stories about how she was built. How was she built? Well, apparently, and I had to have the woman tell me the story a few times. And it seems like it's just each time I need to ask her to retell me again. But she had a friend who was a lawyer and he was also, he was paraplegic. And somehow she said that he wanted to build this stone area around her and would crawl to the creek behind and get the rocks and pull them back so that all the rocks around there are brought in by him. And underneath her, the woman's parents are buried. She's just a magical overlooker. I, I This morning when I was coming in, I, I gave her a look like, okay, I know we're going to talk about you today. So, um, so then one day, we heard the word Atina in our mind's eye and went to look up what that word meant. And we found that Atina was the corn goddess of the Mohicans, whose original land this is that we're living on. And that was so significant 
that it made sense why this mother goddess just comes through in so many forms. And Athena in the story has been given the powers to be able to take the people from the darkness to the light and keep them living with the help of the animals and the land. And so much about what our business is about is understanding this land that we live in and, and what are the benefits, the medicine, the food is medicine all around us that we can put forth in the food that we make. Um, my husband is from South India and comes from a Ayurvedic tradition. So medicine as food is so much a, a part of the way that he grew up. And it's something that I've been so interested in. So we started growing food and we have about an acre and a half. We have continuously expanded how many gardens we have. We don't grow all the food for our products, but we're able to test things. A major part when we moved here was about wanting to be in charge of our own food and production. And of course, for some consistent reason, we never start small, you know, we not just a little garden, I think I would have been stressed out where, you know, what am I going to do with five beets? So, um, so we just grew a lot, which has been really interesting. We've been able to use that besides for testing things, but we've built an outdoor kitchen that has a traditional stove in it. We um, used to do pre-COVID, we would do luncheons and have people over and be able to cook food on our outdoor stove with foods that we grew here. And we also have had different people come and volunteer and stay here and be able to eat the food that we're growing. So we're continuously working on more, more and more of this. And, and we also use Indian seeds or local seeds. We grow a lot of different things, but our interest is what are the things that are native to here and what, what grows really well here. I'm curious when you say you heard the word Atina in your mind's eye, I'm sure that has a meaning that just isn't entirely clear to me. Like, what does that mean exactly? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> I think my husband heard it and then we just kind of were playing with it and then figured out what it meant. What's interesting is that my husband, I had heard his name in my mind three times and I, I wrote it down because I said, why is this significant? And I'd never met anyone with his name. And the next day, then when I when I met him, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I think as the story has been thought through so many times, I forget who really heard the name. How did you and your husband meet? I was in India doing a, an art residency, was going to a community in um, southeastern India to look at the way that they worked with democracy and, and worked with themselves. And a friend that I knew from graduate school had said, get in touch with this person. And I didn't have time really. But then all of a sudden, right before 2012 hit, it really, really hit because there was a tropical cyclone there that really devastated most of the area that I was in. So I kind of had to leave my post. And then I called him because there was someone else that knew someone else. <laughs> there was some, some person around. And we met that way. So I called him and he was going to look at this archaeological site and said, come aboard my motorcycle and thought, no one's going to do that. And which I, I think, why wouldn't anyone? And we went out to look at this archaeological site. And the next day he took me to a temple nearby that had been in the same family for 1200 years. The sculptures on the sides of the building were of the same families being given their Brahmin status, I think by the gods, to look over this area. So he brought me to them. And apparently the guy married us <laughs> without me really knowing. And, and that was that. 
That's a beautiful story. I, I think that it's interesting to me that we keep coming back to the land and the gods. What have you learned from the land, sort of being a steward there and working with the land in Catskill? Yeah, it's interesting thinking about my time in India and, and my time here, the kind of feeling there that things are out of our control and that you have to give yourself into a way of being that's beyond human understanding. And I think it's harder for me to live that way in this country, but I think my husband does more so. We've let the land dictate us in a way, like like let it tell us where it wants things, let it show us what it wants, really trying to be aware of listening to it, which is not easy and, and very hard in a culture that is very much about control, controlling your elements, then letting the elements control you. And that's interesting when you do gardens and things, but like where to put that? Where does it want to go? How to let the land talk to you? And we don't have to live on the food that we grow, but generally we can pretty much live on stuff for about six months. And then we also do our favorite thing is food preservation, which is definitely what our business does. We probably have a business from it because we just want to make so much of it. And your, your neighbors were overrun, right? Like that first stop for some businesses is, well, my, my friends and neighbors were, they, they were saturated. So I had to move on and create a business out of this thing. Yeah, yeah. It's so much fun to be able to preserve things that don't need refrigeration. That's like very exciting and also completely like a sustainable method. So we could basically live all year with the foods that we can preserve. I mean, we might want some other foods, but um, we can preserve squash. We can preserve tomatoes. We have so many different ferments going right now in our storage area. It's basically like a root cellar. And that's just in some ways, while it's great to make products that people can buy or have in their own house and in their life, which I love, it's also would just be great just to teach people how to do it so that everyone can do this and be able to have a much more sustainable and relationship with what where they live. So it's not like I managed a farmer's market for a summer and I remember the vendor's just laughing and getting so annoyed. They're like, there's another one asking me for a banana, you know, or a lemon or, or whatever it is. And realizing how out of touch we are with seasonality and, and eating foods that are in season. Or like seasonality is great, but then if you can eat them in the winter because you've saved them, like that's awesome. That just extends what seasonality means. I've never conquered that. I've preserved tomatoes, but I'll never go to the step of sterilizing the cans and doing it the right way so that I don't kill myself. So, you know, I will preserve things, but they're all short term. Sometime I'll have to come and you'll have to teach me like how the long ferments work. Absolutely. I think that that's really just fear. I mean, one of the first things my husband taught me was how to make yogurt. And he was like, you don't even have to boil the milk. I mean, we boil the milk, but I thought that I needed this special system. Like I needed to buy some kind of thing that I plugged in and kept it at a certain temperature. This is out there that you need to have the specialized equipment, but that's really, it's really capitalism. It's like art supplies that you have to get this certain package that has specially cut pieces of yarn to do this certain thing. You don't need any of that. You can do it with what you have and that's how humans have survived. So yogurt, it's made, I mean, in traditional cultures, you're gonna make it in a natural vessel, ceramic vessel, and it makes itself. I mean, you boil the milk and you can put old yogurt in or you can make your own starter and then there's the yogurt. I mean, okay, you have to actually be aware of the humidity in your air or if it's cold, it's not gonna work so well, like it works better in a tropical area, but it works. It's like sprouting. If we didn't have vegetables all the winter, you're in quarantine and you can't go out, you can just sprout your seeds and you've got fresh vegetables and there's just the fact that we're so removed from that is 
it's not a mistake. I think we're, we are consecutively removed from those things when they're actually really available to us. I was interested in the intersection of your art practice around belonging and this place where you now belong. Do you feel like you belong in this land and in this place? And can you talk about the intersection of the art and exploration and how that maybe informed your choice of living here or how you inhabit the space you're in? Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful, the way you're framing it as belonging and pulling that from the work I've done is really, it's a great pinpoint and it gets me to think about it in a different way. I think that it's a constant struggle to feel like I belong, but I'm working on it. I have been a performance and a media artist for all of my life before working in what we're doing now. And it is always like how to tie these things together and see how they inform each other. An early piece that really had a significant effect on me was where I was trying to say hello to a million people. And I I did this for several years and I would walk around and say hello to people and make this connection. And while I was doing this, I was also very much involved with media. And this was some way against the feeling that media took from me, which was that presence. Like with media, you can be very removed. And saying hello to people was a way to actually staple in that moment and make a real connection. It's interesting as I'm looking outside at my kale plant and with what you said, it is all the same thing. Like the feeling that I got from that is a similar feeling that I get from growing plants that sometimes may be used for food. But being in relationship to the land is the way that I've found to make that connection. And when I'm feeling sad and blue and I go out into the garden, I am connected. When I lived in the city, my connection was interacting with people. So during this project of saying hello, I would um, figure out ways that I could make myself more open or approachable to people so that I could have this interaction. So I had to start changing myself in order to be able to be that person, which meant like I didn't wear black. Sometimes I noticed if I wore a flower on my jacket, people were able to approach me better. But one thing I also noticed was that if I said hello to three people and I interacted with three people, that the next three were free. I didn't have to try to do it. They happened to me. And so this aura that was beginning to be created wasn't just in my own self, like it worked in the world. So I started working with myself that way. I love the connection that you make between connecting with humans and then connecting with plants. Like we have so many intimate relationships and they don't have to be the expected ones. I think the expected ones are family, friends, cats, dogs, animals, but it can equally be in the natural world, which is your experience of it. Um, You had another project where you set yourself up in the world and you became a notary. And I love this project because at the heart of it is the question of, are you who you say you are? And who can say who someone is? And who are you to notarize their existence? And that gave me so much to think about just because this notion of where do we look for validation? And, you know, a notary is not trying to validate you, but on the other hand, they are validating your experience in a legal sense. So I'd love to have you share with the listeners the notary project, the yes siri Yes siri the public notary. I, I, I love hearing the way you describe it because it really gets to what it really is about. So at some point in time, a bunch of years ago, I decided to become a public notary for this very question, who was it that could prove that you were who you say you are? This came about because I was in the Brooklyn courthouse and I, I needed something 
notarize to get to my next level of life. And there was no one in the court that could notarize me. And they said, oh, you can go outside, go into the bank. I was like, okay, I'll go into the bank. That's an official place. Like <laughs> these ideas of what official places are. So I go into the bank and I ask, where's the notary? And they said, oh, go through that back door. And there's a candy man out there. And I was like, the candy man? And they're like, yeah, the, the, the candy man can notarize you. And I was like, wow. So I go out and there's just this man that has a candy rack in the back of this bank area. And this person is able to validate who I am so that I can get to the next level of my life. And I was like, wow, I want to be able to do that. <laughs> and, um, and it's not very hard to be a notary, but let's just explain for a second what a notary is. A notary public. You are deemed by the state to be someone who can take someone's identification and, and say, yes, this person is who they say they are. Everything that they have notarized, you're not saying whatever they're doing is true or anything like that. You are just saying, Dana is Dana. I see her ID or I know her through this many people. And I can now check mark that this is this person. And I found that to be so interesting that I'm not able to do that for myself. And what does that mean? I mean, it's part of a cultural thing that you are guilty till proven innocent, basically. You are not this person unless the candy man, because of all the non-rigorous training that they went through, can say that you are this person. That type of validation, I realized, was key. Like, I realized all the ways that I... I've looked for validating myself, asking someone else for validation. Why was it that I wasn't allowed to do that for myself and that this is inherently part of our system? As a notary, I'm actually not legally allowed to notarize myself. That is really twisted. It's amazing. I do have a secret book of notarizations that I would do for myself because I just wanted to think about that. Like, why am I not allowed to do these things? You are not anything until somehow someone says that you are. So I decided to become Yesery, the public notary. And I could set up on a street corner and people could come and validate anything they want. And I don't care. I don't want to even know what it is. I actually, I don't legally need to or shouldn't know what it is. All I need to know is that you are the person that you say you are. So I came up with a little sing-song version of the jurat, which is when you go to a notary, it doesn't necessarily happen in this country, but it is supposed to, that you have a uh, notarial performance that actually you say that you are the person that is in this document and that you attest to the fact that you are that person and that you will uphold what it is that you're attesting to, whatever the, the form that it is, that you will uphold it by your higher power or God. You can have an affirmation or an acknowledgement. And, and that's actually in the legal terms. If it's God or your higher power, then couldn't that be yourself? And wouldn't you be able to notarize yourself and say, I will play guitar better notarized that before. But the truth is, is that it's a, a useless position. I basically like would get myself out of a job because it isn't about yes or e or any public notary or anyone validating anything. It's about you doing it for yourself. What's interesting is that since I don't do these projects right now in the same way, I was rebringing this up and I started saying my affirmation to myself in my own notary way. And it helped me, it, like helped me get to some things that I was thinking through. And instead of listening to my fear voice, listening to my confident voice, which says, I am, yes, I am. Yes, I am who I say I am. And I say what I say is true to the best of my knowledge and belief I do. And that's usually as a notary, I would <laughs> ring a bell 
and you'd sign your name and you're off. And if you really pay attention to it, you can take this into anything. I mean, it's obvious stuff, but it is interesting when it's brought into a legal stance. So when you think about notarizing yourself, what are the words or what are the, the language you would use around who you are? Like, I think about this in sort of a meta way, right? At the beginning of the show, I talk a little bit about who you are, but you probably have a very specific way that you define who you are, and that you would notarize either at this moment in time or any moment in time. How do you describe that? Oh, it's such a deep question, because I don't know if I would describe it in words. I think I would go into a kind of a slow meditative state and feel myself touching the ground and a certain type of meditation where I can feel my face feeling straight. You know, I would go into feeling myself in space. But the words help me get there when I was thinking about it this week since we were talking how powerful that is to share that with the outside world and that's actually what's so interesting about an oath like why an oath is important is that it's not just said inside of yourself it's a covenant where it the words leave your body into the outside world either to other people or to the air or to the gods or whatever is around you and that covenant is what you're making with the world that you live in. So it isn't just, as I just said before, and I'm going like just the meditative part of it. It's actually about the verbal oath and the, the, the performance of it is ancient. It's an ancient thing that we say it so it gets outside of our bodies. And that is the covenant. And that's really what the oath is. And that's what a notary is, is just a witness that that's happening. And it's an interesting place we live in that we need a legal witness to sign off on that because of the lack of trust in people in the culture that we live in. One thing that I find very interesting is this conversation would have been remarkable, let's say, five years ago. But with the introduction of Trump and the rejection of facts and the realignment around truth, it becomes even more interesting because you have questioning of fact and truth at every level. I also think it's really interesting that what you're talking about for yourself in terms of who you are has nothing to do with, I think, where people most often go with that question, which is, I am a, and it's a sort of fill in the blank, I am a podcaster, I am a mother, I am a, you know, like there are these things that define ourselves and you didn't go that direction at all. You're like, I actually turn inside myself to recognize who I am inside. And I can articulate that by saying it out into the world, but you're not defining yourself by any of your actions really within the outside world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know if I could feel connected to defining myself in any of those other fluid ways. They're very limited. So I'm curious whether defining yourself in that way, which is internal, does that connect at all to the work that you're doing with the land and with your business? It's funny, I just thinking of how difficult sometimes it is to find the words. How would I describe myself to you? Or how would I describe my condiment to you? But I think all of it is about the experience and how to transcend the experience into something that feels real. And it's so interesting marketing condiments um, and trying to get people to understand it through these other types of skills I have, which are a little more elusive. But I know when someone tastes something, this happens when we do markets and we do, we meet people and there's often a lot of talk, you know, talk, talk, talk. And I say, okay, now just taste this and don't say anything. 
And it's such a wonderful moment because what happens is that our condiments are Ayurvedic, which is a loose term, but really one of the things is they're not exotic, like all the ingredients have to be from India or or anywhere. It's really about a balance of tastes, the balance of six tastes that are really transforming all the time on your tongue. And our idea is balancing these tastes that don't necessarily all happen at once. Like sometimes it'll be like 30 seconds until I taste this heat. There was something uh, we made the other day and I was like, wow, I don't feel the heat, but it's 10 seconds away, you know, and just the experience of that. It sounds like thunder and lightning and rain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, I like that. Oh, that's a good explanation. Thunder and lightning. So I guess that transformation that happens is an experience. And if we can take the moment to be involved in it, then there's also a connection because there's a connection to yourself. A taste is a very individual thing on how you're tasting it and what type of experience your body and your mouth and everything has. So eating and (laughs) the food and all of it is all about connection. And and then being able to grow things and be able to work with farmers that are local or work with food around here is all connected. So it's like, I mean, I don't really even like the word art necessarily because it's all just living and, and how do we experience things and keep finding transformation and transcendence in it, which is when I used to teach art and as a professor of art and constantly having to come up with the, what is the definition and the only definition that ever worked for me was that you're, you're going to transcend. It isn't just I'm going to show you a bunch of this. It's going to be transcend. So when I was working on all these projects, it was about how could I get to something that wasn't just about showing it, but actually changed me or made me feel different. So if I'm saying hello to people, I want to feel like, when is this affecting me? It isn't just rote. So with a condiment, I mean, it's so cool. I love like... This thing goes into this refrigerator, which is what I used to call the the refrigerator museum. My friends have said, you're making condiments. And they're like, I remember the refrigerator museum. I always loved condiments because they tr- they make, they change your whole, f- all your food is just changed through this. But I also would love just to teach people how to make these things and look at like wh- how, how to make these balances. I mean, I'm learning and I've been learning a lot. I love your um, connecting all these different parts of your life to create an experience that transforms. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the Ayurveda and the balances and the flavors and what it's like to go from being a professor and a practitioner of art to being a condiment queen. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Casella's Prosciutto Speciale. Casella's Prosciutto Speciale is made in America following the time-tested traditions of Italy's Norcini, the itinerant butchers who traveled the countryside preparing, seasoning, and aging meat. Just like those dedicated artisans of old, Casella's Prosciutto starts with the highest quality ingredients. They exclusively use rare breed heritage pigs, including Duroc, Tamworth, Berkshire, and Large Black, which are pasture-raised by small family farmers across the U.S. Their slow-on-the-bone curing process follows the standards of the Italian Prosciutto Consortia and produces consistently gorgeous results. Casella's Prosciutto is elegant. It is marbled, delicate, and nutty. They value that each ham is unique from the next, 
showcasing the subtle difference between breeds, farms, sizes, and pigs. Casella's believed in the quality of ingredients, good pork, salt, and thyme. It's that simple. Learn more at casellasalumi.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Held, a food and agriculture journalist and the host of The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I know it's difficult to find reliable information on where your food comes from and how that relates to the issues you care about, like the climate crisis, racial justice, and health. With Peeled, my new Substack newsletter, I'm going to make it easier for you. At Peeled, we'll pull back every story's shiny outer layer and go straight to the core. Each week, I'll send you an email with original reporting and expert analysis. I'll make it interesting, I promise. And together, we'll get better at making delicious, healthy choices that align with our values. Subscribe at peeled.substack.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. My guest today is the extraordinary Carrie Dashow, and we are talking art, existence, and of course, food. So Carrie, you use recipes from your husband's family. I'm sure you make up some recipes along the way. You're doing testing. I'd love to hear about the foundational ideas behind the condiments that you're making. Our, our food business is called Atina Foods, and we basically have two different lines of products. One are preserved and unrefined sugarcane juice, and the other are ferments. Ferments are fermented in salt, no vinegar, no water. And those are generally done with local foods. Basically, with both of these types of products, the idea is that the taste is completely tied to the wellness benefit. So it's not just necessarily like that these things do good things for you and therefore you should suffer through <laughs> some taste you don't like. They're really about that the taste itself is part of the benefit. So it's about how it hits your tongue and how the balancing act is going on in your mouth. So something like the six tastes of Ayurveda are balancing of sweet, sour, salty, pungent, bitter, and astringent. Each of our products has that in a different way. Um, so when I talked before about the experience, it's that timing of that experience and that continuous balancing and that that's part of the health process. It's also not necessarily about just using ingredients that are recognized as Ayurvedic or recognized as the ancient combination of them, but that you're able to find the benefits in the foods that grow where you live. And something like a good example of this is one of our favorite products is called Injipuli. Ninji Puli is a ginger tamarind. It's a very traditional digestive, really, that's used for Festival of Onam in Kerala and in South India, where you feast for 10 days. And at the beginning and end of every meal, you eat <laughs> Ninji Puli um, so that it helps you digest the food. And it is so good. I mean, it's such a like deep and strong and like powerful and transformative taste when you're tasting it. This is one of the ones that I like to let people sit with for a second because it's going to change. Depending on your tongue, everyone has an individual way of tasting. It may start as sweet or it may start as hot. Like people come to us and they say, is it spicy? And my husband's like, spicy? Like it's all spicy. Like it all has spices in it, but it's hot is a different thing. So some people find ginger to be hot and some people don't. Some people find pepper to be hot. It, everything is very different. But yes, it is filled with spice. <laughs> that is true. So while we love this product, we grow a lot of rhubarb. And we realized that if we used instead of the tamarind, which is a, is a sour flavor, 
that we could use the rhubarb that we grow and that the rhubarb could do that. And then we had to think about what the rhubarb also does health-wise. And so the rhubarb is very good for fiber and it also is good for digestion and it's good for a lot of different things, different from the tamarind, but it also still is going to give you that flavor benefit and it is going to be from here. So we're able to make the original one. We love to make a local one. Now, this isn't to say that all of our items are just replicas. We've come up with a lot of new different ways of doing things. But this one, I love the example of that, how they relate. But something like our ferments, one of our favorite ferments is our garlic scape pickle. So here we get this extra crop, this garlic scape pops up, and that is the flowering stem of that garlic. And some farmers say something, some farmers say another thing, but the general consensus is that cut your garlic scape so that your garlic bulb grows big. And then you could collect the garlic scape and sell them at the farmer's markets for a few weeks, or sometimes farmers just throw them on the ground and that's it. So this is kind of this extra crop and we started fermenting them and ours are just salt fermented with a spice combination of fenugreek, mustard seed, asafoetida, which is the resin from a tree, and pepper. This year, we actually got to use burlap and barrels, bird's eye chili, which is just a great, gives it a great kick. So that then becomes this this thing that would have been thrown away, but it is this beautiful tasting and also complete immune boosting taste that's like almost like a local caper. It's so much fun to be able to make new tastes out of things that are very traditional here and be able to switch that around. And I think that's part of being a a global couple, that we're able to do that. We live here, we want to understand here, but we have different experiences. And how can we infuse those with what it is we know and not not give up any of it? So um, you manage a farmer's market and you sell at farmer's market. Like, what have you learned from the people you're selling to and the farmers you're selling with? I guess I've learned a bit about who our audience is. One thing I love is that if we have something that Someone could just walk by and say, oh, I know what that is. I wasn't looking for that. But generally, no one knows what it is. If they actually can come in and take a moment, then then experience can start. And that's very much like my performances. (laughs) Um, Come in and like, okay, now we can begin. And then say they come over for a lunch. It's wonderful. Like all these people who are so interesting are able to explore and have adventure in their life. So I've learned my audience is a bit of an adventurer. Did you intentionally walk away from art practice being the center of your work to food being the center of your work? You know, did you arrive at the place and you feel like I'm home or? None of this was intentional. I I think we moved up here and I very specifically had this idea that Practicing art and being a professor, and uh, especially in a city like New York City, you really have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy that I think a lot of my work ended up really dealing specifically with elements of bureaucracy. I really had an idea that, okay, how is this bureaucracy helping me? Is it helping me? Or I'm, I'm getting too good at it. So what can I do? And I thought I could take this skill and look at it as permaculture and look at how food and how plants grow and, and, and look at it this way. And how could I understand this system? Because that's what I would believe in. I don't think that if I'm stuck on a desert island, my bureaucracy is going to help me. But my understanding of how things work together or not together, um, which is probably the same thing, could help. Not that I'm going to get stuck on a desert island, but I think that's just a consistently survival tactic that I have possibly. 
At the end of each show, I ask my guest to give a shout out broadly to a woman they admire who they believe needs more attention. And I wonder who you might recommend. Um, you know, I was thinking about who out there is in- inspiring me. And there's, there's, you know, several people, but, uh, you know, I think excitement comes when I look at, there's a woman in LA named Jess Wang. And she has, I, you know, I'm not sure if she calls it pickle pickle or pickle pickle. She just has such a grace about the ferments that she's constantly experimenting with at the same time using her own traditional culture bringing that forth in what she's making and 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 taking recipes from her grandparents and taking recipes from the culture and working with them but also coming up with new and innovative recipes whether it's pickling or it's making dumplings um she likes to say the future is fermented when we get off this podcast i'm going to google her and i want to try her fabulous fermented things and the last question, is there a transformative ingredient or item in your kitchen that makes the world easier and more delicious for you? Yeah, you know, with the condiment museum, it's ridiculous. But I think the one food that I seem to be eating, and I'm almost out again, is I love a brand called Simply Ghee out of Lancaster. Um, it's a women-owned ghee business, and I love their honey ghee. And their all their ghees are amazing. Um, they make a, a black garlic ghee and a turmeric and black pepper ghee. But they have this consistency to them, and I, I just love it. Mm, that sounds so good. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. It was such a pleasure, and thank you, listeners, for joining in to hear uh, Carrie Dashow and me talk about life, art, food and the corn goddess and we'll be back again next week with another episode of speaking bradley have a great week speaking broadly is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.